This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. It's been a minute since I published an episode of this show. It's actually been way more than a minute. It's been almost four months. Um, And I have shared some sort of oblique uh, updates over on my newsletter, the Post-Evangelical Post, about what's sort of been going on, but essentially a prolonged health crisis uh, within my family, as well as uh, a couple of sudden deaths and things. Those things just took more of my time and attention and the show had to go on hiatus while those things were tended to. And I've had to take breaks from publishing before, notably in 2019 when the show was put on hiatus. At that point, I was much more online and I announced it over on Twitter. This summer, this hiatus just simply happened because I had to. This has been a period of minimal output with regards to this type of work because I've needed to tend to other things and to recover from those same things and allow for other types of work in my life. But uh, hopefully that period is coming to an, has come to an end and I can begin to again start publishing here more regularly. I do think I have this sort of compulsion to, to share uh, you know, what, uh, what I've been up to during this period. Um, I've written over on the Post-Evangelical Post about how uh, you know, being online or publishing something online, it, there's no uh, allowance for like sort of fallow periods or periods of uh, of being not quote unquote productive. And over a decade of social media has sort of conditioned me and maybe uh, other people more broadly to think that if you're not present online, you sort of seem to to cease to exist to entire swaths of people. Um, and I've always sort of struggled with that. But, and to felt an urge to explain myself um, to any potential audience when ultimately I just had to I had to take a to take a break but I I am also thankful to get back into this work and so I am excited about sharing this new interview I have with you um, I spoke to Matthias Roberts about his new book, Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion. Um, And I think a lot of folks will enjoy this book and enjoy the conversation that I had with Matthias, (laughs) excuse me, with Matthias um, 
about his work and about uh, what he poured into into this book. Uh, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you continue to uh, to subscribe to this show, even though it has uh, been uh, on hiatus for a while. I hope you continue to reach out to me. Uh, what you will likely see through the remainder of the year is uh, further author interviews. That is uh, something that that uh, I will likely focus on for the next few months. Um, and I'll be excited to share more of those things with you over at postevangelicalpost.com. Um, that is where you can subscribe to my to this show, to my newsletter. You can subscribe for free or you can uh, uh, sign up for a paid subscription at $5 a month or $50 a year. And that will get you ad-free podcast feeds, uh, additional uh, additional extemporaneous podcasts uh, that I record each week, as well as additional writing. Uh, I, in, a, in addition to Exvangelical, I also uh, write about books and technology and other things there. Uh, so I hope that you uh, will check that out. And if you enjoy this show, please go subscribe over there so you don't miss anything else from me. You can f- uh, follow me there on Substack. Uh, the rest of I'm sort of on Blue Sky and Threads, but um, but follow me on Substack. That's probably the most direct way to see my most meaningful work um, because I'm really not on Twitter or X anymore. And that it's just the reality. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Matthias Roberts. Please uh, follow the link in the show notes to purchase his book from bookshop.org, your local uh, bookstore, or from Amazon if you have no uh, no other uh, alternative. Um, thank you very much, and let me know what you think. My guest today is Matthias Roberts. Matthias is a psychotherapist specializing in religious and spiritual trauma, as well as the host of the Queerology podcast. He's also the author of two books, Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms, and the new book, Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion. Matthias, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Blake. It's good to be here. I'm so glad to talk to you about your life and about your new book. And while we'll turn to your book rather quickly, I want to talk a little bit first about your overall biography. In your book, the past is sort of very much prologue, uh, and you get into your exit from evangelicalism pretty early. Um, But before we get to that, where did you where did you grow up? Like what what part of the states and what was your religious upbringing like? Yeah. I grew up in the Midwest, so was born in Wisconsin, then moved to Iowa when I was 10. Uh, so kind of Wisconsin, Iowa were, were the primary areas where I grew up and was seeped in deep in evangelicalism, but closer to like the fundamentalist side. So like mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I literally was born on a Christian camp in Wisconsin, like a year round Christian camp that my parents worked for for the first you know 10 years of my life. Wow. And you know, like it was everything you expect a Christian camp to be like <laughs> mm-hmm. just deeply religious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the listeners of both of our shows can picture that type of environment pretty clearly. Yes. So this was rural, the rural Midwest as well. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very rural. 
a fellow Midwesterner of Indiana and Illinois instead of. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah <you> did it. <laughs> and so so your parents were involved in ministries of, of some sort or like Christian work or how would you classify it now? Oh gosh, how would I call classify it now? Or um, I mean, yeah, even, they even would, growing up, they would use <laughs> they would use the word ministry absolutely. Okay. Yeah, like yeah. that is that is what my parents considered themselves to be and <laughs> did that work. I mean, and then you know we became missionaries when I was in high school. We moved to Romania, so like we were in it. I was homeschooled. Like it was, mm-hmm. you know, everything in some ways a, a good Christian family in mm-hmm. that world should be. That we we hit those points. Right. Right. In the early chapters, you talk about going to a Christian college. Was that that's that's sort of different for everyone? The sort of circumstances of that. What did it seem more like a given, or was it a was it a choice, or was it somewhere in between? It was a choice, and mm-hmm. like I, I think the thing that I I really appreciate about my parents, like even in all of this context, they were so good about letting my sisters and I choose what we wanted to do with our lives. Mm-hmm. And when it came to college, my parents were very clear. It was one of my earliest memories is my parents telling me, we're not going to pay for your college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I knew like, they're not paying for this. So I kind of get to go wherever I want, mm-hmm. but they, they really wanted me to go to a Christian school. Yeah. And so I made a deal with them. I went for graphic design. I made a deal with them. Like if we can find a Christian school that has a nationally ranked design program, mm. I'll go. And I thought I was making a bet that would get me out of going to a Christian school because I didn't think <laughs> any were out there. Like I had researched yeah. this. Most Christian schools, like their design programs were shit. And I was like, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Like I'm Scott free here. Uh, but it turns out there is a single one. <laughs> and it's it in only took one. And <laughs> That's where I went. So, <laughs> okay. So, so the the draw to the south was was because of the program. Okay. Okay. Interesting. There's this sequence of events that you describe in your book that that do set the stage for some of what comes what's to come later, and that's when you at the school uh, asked to talk about your faith as well as your sexuality and potentially even coming out publicly in the context of a Christian college and you're denied that option to speak if you could elaborate on that a little bit for the audience so that so that they could can sort of understand what what that context was and what that meant and how that affected you at the time because i do feel that 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 is a recurring thing that happens to all manner of queer students across christian colleges yeah yeah so at my school they had a, a service, a chapel service, every Sunday night where seniors would give a message. So a different senior every Sunday would give a message. And it was kind of expected that if you were anyone on campus, if you had done anything <laughs> like kind of publicly on campus, that you would speak in this service during your senior year. Uh, and and I, you know, had been in student leadership. I had done I had done all these things. It was homecoming king, like all this stuff. So it was almost it was like a given. Like people just were like, "So when's your date? <laughs> what date are you speaking?" Right. And I really felt this sense of I, I was still very much like I'm going to stay celibate. Like I'm gay, but I'm going to stay celibate because that was the university position I believed it at the time. And felt this sense of, I want to talk about this part of my life. Like, I haven't, 
I haven't talked about this and yet it's mm-hmm. such a huge part of my life. I haven't come out. So I put, I put together a little outline, you know, sent it off to the folks who were in charge of the chapel services and they, you know, three weeks later wrote back and said like, we are going to need a word for word manuscript of what you plan to say in the service. Mm-hmm. And, and to my knowledge, no one had ever been asked for that. Like, I didn't know anyone else who had to do something other than just a pretty sparse outline. I was like, okay. So I wrote that manuscript. I worked really hard on it, trying to like, I look back and I was like, I was so good in some ways. Like I tried (laughs) so hard to like promote the university's position on LGBTQ people while Mm -hmm. still sharing my story. I worked so hard on that and they got it. I didn't hear back from them. You know, senior year started. There was no chapel date. I followed up and they were like, yeah, well, maybe next spring. But like the president of the university wants to look over this first. And I was like, okay. I still believed they were going to let me. Like I look back and again, how naive and also how yeah hard I was trying. <laughs> but yeah, spring, spring term rolled around and I, I got an email saying like, yeah, the president looked over this. We don't think we're ready to have a student come out on this campus yet. So we don't get to speak. It, it was, I think, more devastating than I was willing to admit back mm-hmm. then. Like, I kind of rolled with it back then. And I was like, oh, it makes sense. But I think underneath all of that, and then that's so much of what this book kind of gets into, there was this cracking happen, this sense of, I don't belong in this world. And they're making it very clear to me that I don't belong in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this, this was a time when, when you're, when you're, I don't know. I feel like sometimes when I, when I try to, when I try to contextualize these things, it's like, of course your faith meant a lot to you at the time. And of course mm-hmm. the, the validation that you sought would mean a lot to you at, at mm-hmm. that time. And to be accepted as a whole person, um, but but they but they made it about the group not being ready for something like that, and denied you that that sort of rite of passage. That, mm. yeah. and and you're and you do you use the the term cracking, which which you use a lot of really wonderful metaphors in the uh, in the book. This it seemed like the. In reading in reading the book, there was this. I don't know how quickly it it, it, it happened in, in in real time, but there was that event, and then ultimately you you make a decision to come out publicly online, that is not affirmed by everyone in your life, and then you also make this decision to to move to Seattle, and which is also sort of this leap of faith, and it seemed like all of those things were this cum- cumulative effect. How how quickly did all of that happen for you? That was all over about two years. Okay. I mean, from, from, or maybe three, like between two and three years, like from that kind of trying to speak at the chapel service, coming out, deciding to go to grad school in Seattle. Yeah. It was, it was two and a half, three years. And the whole scheme of things isn't that long. (laughs) Like those Mm -hmm. those are big things. Um, And they, they sort of culminate um, into these, these sort of watershed moments. And you, you titled your book, Holy Runaways. So, what 
what sort of culminated in, in you sort of landing on on that language to describe sort of what you what you'd been through and and how how you understood it, these experiences yeah that that language of, of runaways holy runaways didn't come until much later mm-hmm. it, it was when i was thinking about this book and kind of thinking about the, these big questions that i that i approach in the book which is ultimately like kind of what do we do with our faith when we have left it and I was thinking through all the language that I had heard up until that point, you know, deconstruction being one of them, mm-hmm. ex-evangelical being one of them, like all, right. like all of this language and didn't like, I found myself in that language. I was like, yeah, like this does describe some of it. But when I was thinking about my story, I was like, I, it really feels like I ran away from something. Like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't this like sense of, Oh, one day I woke up and decided, like, I'm going to start to try to tear things down. Um, I mean, that happened, sure. <laughs> Deconstructed, right. absolutely. Yeah. But it very much was a sense of, I, I ran away from something. And I think so many of us who have been in these contexts have run away from them, trying mm-hmm. to find something better. And right. as I thought about it, I, I was like, that, that reminds me of when I ran away as a kid. Like, ran away from home trying to find something better. Like that was always the goal. Like I'm going to get out of here and, and find something better. I think it's an apt metaphor and, you know, metaphor has uh, intrinsic power for us. I mean, that's, that's why, that's why Jesus uses parables. You know, it's, it's not, it's not something that's totally abstract. It's actually inherent to the way we process things so like finding language and you you talk about this in different points in your book that finding languages is is a key part of uh, of accruing the knowledge you might need to understand your experience but then you have to reconcile it too and that's a whole other a whole other process before we get into some of those headier things that that you talk about in the book i do want to sort of address this this aspect that you bring up around empathy and you, you actually reference this thing that, you know, back in my more extremely online days was a lightning rod thing that happened. And like desiring God published this thing about the sin of empathy. And like, it was, it was received with absurdity because, um, because like, it's just unfathomable to people out sort of, outside or who have left that type of thinking to to frame something like empathy as a sin um but at the same time there are plenty of us who are runaways or any other way we want to describe ourselves as people who've left high control places religions and religious groups where people do shut off that compassionate side of themselves and i you speak about that that in the in the book or write about that in the book. And I, I was curious if you could address that sort of in your, in your personal experience and within your work about, about what you see as the motivation for people to, to, you know, harden their hearts essentially to someone if they say come out as gay and they're not affirming or any other number of, of things, but instead of extending love or compassion, they choose the alternative. You know, in my view, that pardoning keeps the system working, mm. right? It, it, it keeps 
the cognitive dissonance from being overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember when I was in that world, someone would tell me something that I didn't agree with. And instead of listening to that person, or I would like feign listening to that person, mm-hmm. I would then run back, you know, and start Googling and being like, what does, you know, this person say about this? What does this person say about that? Like getting back into the dogma, mm-hmm. that, that, that sense of, I would, I would have called it theology. Good theology is what I would have called it. <laughs> being like, what does the Bible actually say about this thing? So that I can alleviate any sort of tension that began to come up in me as I listened to someone uh, who was different than me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, it, I mean, it creates this self-reinforcing system mm-hmm. that I think works really well. I mean, it keeps people contained. It keeps them from being afraid. And it helps give people answers whenever something does come up that might start to challenge that system. And I, I think the, the one of the things that can cause that system to start to crumble is this presence of human empathy. Like we <laughs> yeah, yeah. are wired for it. Yeah. And in some ways we are taught in faith spaces to feel empathy. And I, I think for so many of those of us who have run away, like it, it is that empathetic response that kind of got us going on this, on this journey. To mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, there's a David Bazan lyric that, that always resonates with me, but he's in this song where he's sort of lamenting, feeling a little misled by, by sort of the elders in the faith or in society. It says, but your eyes turned green and you broke the machine that when handed to you was still kind of functioning. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, that, that's right. I, I, I'm definitely agreeing with you that, that it's that maintaining the system instead of responding to the person in front of you. I want to transition into some of the broader themes that you touch on in the book. And one of them and is, is sort of an extension of what you wrote about in an entire book, which is, which is shame. And you, you introduce it through a class that you took with, with a teacher at your school, Dr. Angela Parker, who challenges you or makes you question your own assumptions and asked you why your belief was rooted in a theology of shame. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious what about the way in which she called that out so specifically um, was so revelatory about identifying that, that the theology was rooted in a sense of shame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember this day so clearly. Like I, I, I was in meeting with Dr. Parker to start working on my thesis for, for my theology master's. Uh, and she was my advisor for, for that project. And I walked into her office. It was a preliminary meeting where I was just kind of pitching ideas to her. Like, here's what I want to work on. And I pitched her this idea of like, I want, you know, I want to talk about like homosexuality, gay Christians in some way that isn't a defense like for why it's okay to be gay and Christian, but instead kind of looking at how God might fold in LGBTQ people, even if that wasn't part of God's original design. Mm-hmm. And like, that was the part that she latched onto <laughs> where I was like, clearly, you know, in the book of Genesis, like queer people don't exist. Like, and like that wasn't part of the original design for humanity. And yet here we are. And I want to you know talk about all of that. And, and she looked at me and and said, 
she said, why, why are you starting? Why are you rooting this in a theology of shame? And I had no idea what she meant at the time. I was, I was like, I don't, I couldn't identify the shame. I was like, that, that seems weird. And, but she, she pointed out in, in this area of beginning with this starting point of there is something wrong with queer people, as in it wasn't part of God's original creation. Mm-hmm. But she was driving home this point of like, that is shameful. There is inherent shame in that. Uh, it, it took me a long time to actually be able to see that. Like, I didn't really agree with her, uh, but that, that question lingered with me. And I, it caused me to really start to reevaluate my starting points. Like, do, do I even believe anymore? And, that, and now I would say I don't believe that this idea of there was an original design for creation that was only heterosexual people. I think that's ridiculous. Um, but back then, it, it seemed apparent to me based off of the, the inherent homophobia, but shaming mm-hmm. within the, the theological system that I had been a part of. Mm-hmm. And then the, the sentence, at one point you write, for many of us, the voice of shame is the voice of God. And that one, that one immediately got an underline for me <laughs> because I think that's something that, that we, it, it's just part and parcel of white evangelical culture and a lot of other parts of strains of, of Christianity as well, but it is so endemic to the very assumptions of what all of us have to, uh, all of us sort of carry that, that vision of God in our mind as it's initially presented to us. At the same time, you also bring in instances of, of say, being attracted to stories of repentance and how sometimes those, those stories of repentance and of change, even though they're framed as, as victories, they're also still, there's, there's a shame underneath there too. The one that, the one that you, that you, one that you mentioned a hearing like on the radio was about someone who used to sleep around and then, and then someone told him about Jesus and then he couldn't perform sexually anymore. And I remember, I don't know if you ever, uh, every, every man's battle or every young man's battle, oh, yeah. but that was, uh-huh. that was part of that story too, of, of mm-hmm. one of the authors of that book, which like for, you know, a hormonal teenager is like the worst thing to hear. Uh, like this, this, this guy got to sow his oats, but not you, not you. <laughs> so that, that sense of shame, it, it can linger for, for so long and in so many, so many different ways. Uh, but how, how have you sort of addressed it personally? And do you think that there's also, do you think that there's also a, a social or communal component to addressing the theology of shame or is it primarily about like is is addressing that more about your individual healing as opposed to mm. communal healing mm, mm. yeah i think there's a both and here but when i think about shame i think about shame almost primarily as a communal experience right i mean it's highly individualized mm-hmm. in the ways that we we personally experience it 
but but shame is based off of the environments that we have been in. Mm-hmm. We don't find things shaming unless the environments we are in have shamed us for those things, right? Right, right. And 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 so it's so determined by the communities around us. And, and I think that that's I mean why I talk so much about when when we're wanting to work with our shame we have to do that in a communal context. I think that's what Dr. Parker, some of what she did for me was began to open my consciousness, open these ideas within me to like, there is another way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. There, there is a sense of where this isn't shameful inherently. And yes, it's so much personal work, but that has to be done in the context of community as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I feel like that's the, it's not a it's not a tension. It is more of a both a both and. I I think you're absolutely right, and and I'm calling attention to that. And you you write in the book. Um, you may be tired of me saying this by now, but the environments we're born into are what shape us into who we are. We cannot separate who we have become from those formative contexts, and that is that is something that. That you know, as I've held conversations like this over the years, and and thought about these things sort of on my own path and how how things have occurred for myself and my my family, that is that's getting that gets to the heart of of I think one of the hardest struggles is when you are a runaway, and the place that you ran away from formed you so much. How do you like? what is the how how difficult it is to individuate from that without necessarily repeating the same mistakes or carrying some of those things forward into a new context and i don't have an answer for that because i think you're 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 exploring similar things throughout this book i think that is one of the the most difficult questions of this process. And, and it's the thing that, that I, I really wanted to focus in on, on this book, in this book, was that, that sense of what it means to change context. Mm-hmm. I think so many of us, of those of us who have run away, you know, we do the, the deconstruction. We kind of work on the theology or, or just can say like, oh, I don't believe this thing anymore. I now believe this thing. We kind of, we kind of switch out our, our values, our belief systems, whatever. I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, so don't hear any critique there. Like, I think that that is part of the process. And we also have our nervous systems in the mix mm-hmm. that our nervous systems regulate to the environments that we have been in. And if, if we haven't re-regulated to a new environment, then we're going to find, even with new beliefs, that we are drawn to the same type of environment, regardless of what the belief systems are. Like I, I think so many people talk about this kind of like progressive fundamentalism that that I, I think can be apparent when we look around. I think a lot of that can be explained by this reality of when we have been in very rigid systems, our nervous systems have regulated to those systems. Those same systems are going to feel comfortable to our bodies, again, regardless of what the beliefs are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when we talk about healing, we're actually talking about re-regulating our nervous systems to environments that are more healthy, less rigid, more integrated. But those environments will not feel safe initially. 
they're not going to feel good. It's going to feel like something's wrong here mm-hmm. because we're not used to them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is the work of healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of uh, recognizing that you remain hypervigilant, sort of regardless of whether you are in danger or safe or somewhere in between or whatever. Those, you, your, yourself, your body's just not, <laughs> not equipped or ready to accept that. I, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I, uh, you mentioned that idea of, of progressive fundamentalism and, there's a there's a great great way in which you introduce that and i actually won't spoil it because i i think it's hilarious and awesome so please go buy the book to to get this metaphor of sort of switching switching context but nonetheless you you do sort of say that sometimes well within you can move to a progressive place and then have similar attitudes to the uh, to the people that you used to be like when we're when we're talking about that move to progressive theology progressive places and and theologies i this is something that i sort of struggle with because i'm still i i don't know about yourself i'm still in progressive spaces and like i see the similarities like progressive people like to do devotions you know they like the the that sort of stuff uh, i have like sort of weird traumas around that and i it doesn't resonate with me at all um, but right. like i see these progressive people loving it uh, and that mm. is confusing to me and at the same time there's you know there is reticence to talk about christian nationalism or things like that that you would think maybe maybe you shouldn't be there and how i sort of have thought about it in my mind is like this sort of ex evangelical former evangelical dispersal into you know non-religious spaces, progressive spaces. Um, but we are bringing all of this baggage from our prior environment with us. And you never know where someone is in their journey. You also, you specialize in this. Uh, this is something that you offer individual service for. Um, how do you a- approach that with the sort of, the sort of, grace and 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 kindness how how do you make space for for those people yeah well i mean when i think about it so like again there's so much critique right now around progressive fundamentalism and and i think the, the critique is valid because there is harm that is happening absolutely is and when i think about it i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing i i, I actually think for many of us we need to go through kind of a, a stage, a, a developmental phase of, of being able to hold to these new values with rigidity, because I think that helps them coalesce within us. Um, mm. that, that helps us get a sense of here are the new boundaries. Again, that can cause harm when we get on the internet and start getting mad at people who don't believe the same exact things that we do, and you know it, it causes communities to rupture that can be harmful and we're also trying on new values like like so, so the, i hope people hear the the level of complexity in here mm-hmm. and i i hope some of that that grace of like we're not advocating for bad things I, maybe some of us are i don't know but like <laughs> that's we're stepping into a new way of being and i i think 
there are further steps. I think like we can start in that, that's that, that place where we need to be rigid. Mm-hmm. And, and then maybe as we start to feel more safe, we, we start to realize like, Oh, th- these other people aren't actually threatening. Like they are not threatening my way of being mm. the Christianity that I grew up in. Every other belief system was a threat. And right. I had to be able to speak out against that, have my arguments like, that was how I was raised to be. That's not mm-hmm. going to change. Right. If I change my beliefs, but slowly starting to learn like, oh, I don't have to be hypervigilant. I don't actually have to defend myself against these people. Mm-hmm. Like they can have their beliefs. We can talk about the impact of those beliefs. We can, we can get into conversations about how our beliefs shape reality the world, how they do harm, how they might not be doing harm. Like all those things are very legitimate conversation. And I think the, the stakes maybe start to lower mm-hmm. uh, so that we, we can exist in the world with, with more, what I would say, a more regulated nervous system, mm-hmm. more settledness. Mm-hmm. The other, the other aspect that, that I appreciated about your book, as you explore those things of, I like this, this path that has over the last several years become more uh, become more apparent that that a lot of folk are or have been on similar paths thanks to things like podcasts and social media accounts and books and whatever whatever else is you you acknowledge the slippery slope and that 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 this trend towards you know rigid fundamentalism or our conservatism of some sort to something progressive to and going through a period of rigidity there and then sometimes moving entirely out of a faith practice um you acknowledge the the sort of the the reality of that but you did it in a very interesting way which is that you acknowledged your own sense of not knowing but then you brought in this this theological perspective from from a Catholic priest, Father James Martin, uh, that really centers Allison. The, the James Allison. I'm sorry, James. I'm sorry, James. James yeah, Allison. Two different people. <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. You are right, and I apologize. That you're I, good. <laughs> I apologize for that that mistake. I have it in my notes, and I wasn't looking. James Allison, who can, who, I'd never, I hadn't heard of this. The, this writer and and priest, but he has this take on comparing God to nothing instead of to all the other gods. If you could sort of uh, contextualize that, because it's, it was such an interesting way to lead back to the Jesus story, mm-hmm. um, in a in a way I wasn't wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, James Allison, he's he's a, he's a gay Catholic priest, um, contemporary. He's alive. He's a lovely, lovely person, and has he has done more than I, I think I can say this with certainty. Any other person to take the philosophy of Rene Girard and flesh it out theologically, and y'all don't need to know Girard <laughs> to to hear some of this argument of what you're discussing, but. But he's playing with this idea of monotheism, uh, the, the the sense of the development of monotheism over time, mm-hmm. and the kind of monotheistic religions. This this what he would call this gradual realization 
that uh, first the Jewish people came to, and then kind of Christianity, Islam came to later, this idea of there is one God. But, but he says there, there are two different ways of seeing this idea of one God. There's this way of seeing that I was familiar with. The, the one that I grew up with is like, our God is the right God. All of these other gods out there, like, you know, even the, the, the Jewish God and the, the Islamic God, but all of these other religions that have different gods, like our God is the right God, is the one God. And all those other gods that they call gods aren't actually gods at all, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe they're demons. I don't know. That, that's, <laughs> that's what I was raised with. Comparing this God, because it is a comparison to all of these other religious gods, but ours is the right one. Allison says, you know, there's actually another way to think about one God. So he uses it as like a mathematical kind of a formula. And he says the sense of, of one God, let me see if I can, if I can, it's been a while since I've talked this through. <laughs> it's the, it's like the, the mathematics of zero and one. Zero being nothing, one being is mm, something. Mm-hmm. And you can compare one to zero, that sense of nothing versus is. And he approaches this idea of God as wondering, what if saying there is a God is like saying is? There is something as opposed to comparing it against a human conceptualization of God, comparing God to no God at all um, and encountering it that way. And, and, and he gets in, and I talk about this a lot in the book, like the significance of that um, and what that might actually mean for when we're trying to reconceptualize God, of, of not using it as a comparison point against you know, the conservative God, but, but instead this God being so far beyond human comprehension that we actually don't have a comparison point. I play with all these ideas and the absolute alert to me of atheism. Allison would argue that, that atheism is a far more, in some ways, theologically profound way of understanding God than any version of Christianity we currently have. And yeah, that's, I, that's I play so with com- those ideas a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's so compelling. And I, I mean, I'm like, I'm drawn to... I'm I'm sort of drawn to like that, and I'm underread in this respect. But like anatheism, like this returning to God after God type thing, uh, you know, of like going through this process of of thinking through conservative or fundamentalist, absolutist types of ways of understanding God, but then still returning back to this understanding of maybe the cosmos or the ground of being or something if you're going to bring like someone like Tillich into it or something like that (laughs) but that was that was very compelling and the other aspect of how you frame father allison's (laughs) i'm still laughing at my flub father allison's approach is the the way in which the story of jesus is reframed in that you in that this sacrifice that that we were all taught that uh you know sort of penal substitutionary atonement theory that Jesus died for our sins that that he was actually satisfying Jesus was satisfying the bloodlust of humanity but he didn't accept he came like it, it was the fact 
in the story, Jesus comes back <laughs> and he doesn't stay dead. He's a scapegoat that doesn't stay dead. And that was just such an interesting way to reframe the story and explicitly in seeing Jesus as a victim. So what does seeing Jesus as a victim allow us to see about either ourselves or about the sort of systems that we're in? Yeah. So, so this idea um, that, that Allison's playing with, that, that Gerard is playing with, is, is this the, the systems of, of scapegoating, of, of how we actually as humans form our identity by us versus them. We know who the in-group is. We know who the out-group is. And we're actually receiving identity from the out-group by being defining ourselves against against that group. And, and I think we can see this throughout history. Like I think a classic example is is some of our founding mythology around the United States. <laughs> this idea of the in-group came, us, you know, <laughs> colonizers came, met the the happy Native Americans who were willing to help us. And um, then we created this feast uh, to, to celebrate all of that. That's the story the victors told, right? Mm-hmm. The actual reality of that is that it was a massacre that the colonizers exploited and took advantage of um, indigenous folks and then slaughtered them. That's not the story we celebrate. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's a classic statement of history is written by the victors. Uh, Allison is playing with this idea of when we listen to those on the margins, those who have been victimized by the victors, and then this works in every system, we actually start to hear the truth. We actually start to hear what actually happened, not the mythology that's created around what happened. And, and so when we start to view Jesus as one who has been scapegoated by humans, Mm-hmm. And then who doesn't stay dead, who actually gets to come back and tell the story of what actually happened. So, so the scapegoating in this case didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus came back and got to tell us, tell us back, like, here's the reality of what actually ha- happened. Here is the violence that is inherent within these systems. And here is now another way. A, a way outside of the violent that violence that doesn't rely on scapegoating. It it blew my mind the the first time I, I read Allison. Uh, I didn't really understand what I was reading, but I knew there was something in it that was like, holy shit! There okay. there is something in here that might actually convince me <laughs> that I can stay Christian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I that that's sometimes the table stakes, right? Like you're searching uh-huh. for something. And that's, that's, that's real. And I, I appreciated that, that, that honesty through, through the text of, well, this, this might do it. (laughs) Like like this is an understanding and, and that, that aspect of between, between I, I mentioned, you know, your, your book goes back and forth between individual healing and individual experience and, and more community aspects or senses of belonging. And as, as you reach that part of the book, there's this aspect of reckoning with what it means to either be a scapegoat 
or to to scapegoat other people and then also holding the the truth of our stories and the stories of other people and you at one point i'm gonna do another another quote here (laughs) you are you are imagining this instance of of like if you could just magically heal people's uh, trauma and you say what haunts me as I imagine this possibility, is that although you and I are healed, the systems that produced our pain still exist. Violence is still perpetrated daily. If we he- ourselves healed the, the moment my wand slices through, through the air, nothing guarantees we won't experience trauma again, possibly in the next moment. The pervasive systems that produce and pe- perpetuate trauma scare me and must be addressed. And you, you don't stop there you don't just name a system you also name the your own sort of complicity in it and that is the tension and i don't necessarily like that word the the reality that i think that a lot of us on these sort of runaway journeys find ourselves in is that we we know we may have moved to another place we're we are more healed than we were before but we're not that doesn't that doesn't mean we're perfect and that doesn't mean like we're perfect social justice warriors online or whatever else we still fuck up <laughs> yeah. um mm-hmm. why is that like that was clearly important enough for you to name yeah cuz cuz what i what i'm trying to ultimately describe is this movement away from systems where we receive identity in goodness and badness mm. right Mm-hmm. Like, like I think like, and, and I have been very, am, have been, am very much part of the sense of if I do all these things, then I am good. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have the right talking points, if I, you know, read enough books about black liberation, then I am good. I, I don't think that's the case. And I think many of us listening would be able to say like, yeah, that's actually not true. And yeah, I think we all, many of us still act in those systems. Mm-hmm. Of trying to be as good as we can. And, and what I'm trying to get at here and I'm trying to live into is moving away from that system entirely. Mm-hmm. What if our goodness and badness is not actually dependent on these ideas of goodness and badness? But, but can we start to acknowledge that we are going to get things right and get things wrong at the same time mm-hmm. and that that is part of human nature and there is hopefully this isn't a triggering ter- triggering term but there is grace for that mm-hmm. there is abundance and compassion and 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 i think goodness in recognizing like for as much capacity as i have to heal i have the same capacity to harm and i think once we be able to recognize with that and and not stake then I am a terrible person or I'm a really good person on those things that actually frees us up to be far more human in the world uh, and be able to own our mistakes, but also be able to work, continue to work towards healing. What do you see as a, as a path to, instead of this good, bad dichotomy, finding something that, that just recognizing your own worth? Yeah. It's simple to say, but so profoundly complicated. <laughs> and that is knowing ourselves to be loved. Um, whether that is a, uh, that whether God fits into that or not, for me, God does fit into that. The, the sense of 
I am profoundly loved. But I don't think God has to fit into that. Like, I think we can come to know that without a conceptualization of God. But, but regardless, being able to start to build an identity, not on this is what makes me good or this is what makes me bad, but on regardless of what I do, I am loved. And that doesn't take us off the hook, though. And I get into this a lot. I use a definition of love that I find incredibly convicting in the book to define love. It doesn't take us off the hook from these things, the moving in the world in a way that that is anti-oppression, uh, that that allows us to work towards justice. I, I think so often when we talk about, well, you're loved, w- many people then kind of feel this sense of, well, if I'm loved, then why do anything? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I don't think that's the case, but but I do think there there can be this movement of where our yeah, again, goodness, badness, or shame hinges on on these things. We can know ourselves as loved, but then when we when we make mistakes, which we inevitably will, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't knock us off so far off track that we become frozen and don't work towards anything anymore. Because I think that's often in this this goodness badness system. We see ourselves as good. We're doing things that are that we think are good. Someone comes and critiques us and says, "Hey, Matthias, like that thing you did the other day, actually wasn't good. <laughs> like that actually hurt me." <laughs> the shame can be so debilitating that we shut down. I've experienced this. I shut down and be like, "Fuck that! I don't want to do this anymore." Like I've been trying so hard to be good. Turns mm-hmm. out I'm not good. Well, fuck this whole system. Like mm-hmm. I'm gonna go over here where I feel comfortable. It removes those stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that there's so much in your book that that I I just really enjoyed. I I really appreciated the way like there are entire aspects we we haven't touched on. We we def, we sort of went into these abstract waters which is I don't know. It's it's what I tend to do. So um, but but there's so much so much wonderful stuff with so many metaphors that you that you that you explore to describe all of these internal experiences, all of these um, these processes of of individual growth and reframing how to sort of live and move in a very complicated world. I I I I really in, enjoyed it, and the I I will be honest. As I was preparing the questions, I like. I, I had all the I had all these questions ready ready to ask you, and I didn't have a a really tidy way to button up our conversation. Um, you know, because because you because you touch on on a lot, and be, I think because I'm currently exploring similar aspects um, from a from a different angle with regards to this individual versus social, and and also you know, seeing to my own, seeing to my own griefs and, and healing that I, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, how to button it up other than to say that I'm grateful that this, that this book will soon be in the world and that, that it is joining, uh, you know, the chorus of folks who are addressing the types of things that that we're all trying to process in real time and you know as as we continue to live in a very 
complicated and, and frustrating world. Is there anything, is there anything we haven't touched on at all, like in, in, in this conversation so far that, that, that you'd like to remark on or, or mention? Yeah. Yeah. Just to speak to what you just said in some ways, like I, I like in this book, I don't really tidily button things up either. Like, I mean, there's, there's an ending for sure. <laughs> but, but, but I, I think like, I think some of that, this reality is that because we are in process, there is not a tidy way to button these things. And I, I gradually have found a lot of freedom in that. I, I have, it's annoying too. Like both of those things are true. Mm-hmm. But but it, all I think all I'm trying to say is like it makes sense to me. Like there, I don't think there are tidy endings to this process mm-hmm. that we are on. Like just because you read my book does not mean your holy runaway journey is going to end. Like it's 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 a continuation of a process that that I believe is lifelong. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And it's been it was it was wonderful to read. Again, the title is Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion. And you can find it anywhere you purchase books, either in your local bookstore, bookshop.org, or Amazon. It is available this week. Matthias, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Blake. This has been- thank you so much for listening to this episode of Exvangelical. If you'd like, you can go over to Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star rating for the show. If you have any comments, you can contact me at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com. Subscribe to my newsletter over at postevangelicalpost.com for free or just $5 a month. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon.